0: Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to have another good friend on the line with me here today, Mr. Phil Lyons. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Phil. Um, but before we get going, I'd really love to share a little bit of uh, the illustrious career uh, Phil had. Um, he started as a sports journalist in 1973. Moved on to the BBC and spent a certain amount of time at ITV, where I believe we actually ended up doing some work together for the first time. Um, A big part of his career was spent with the Premier League as Director of International Broadcast, and we're definitely going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the amazing things Phil did at that time. Uh, He then had a sting with CAA Sports as well as Lagardère until he settled in now with his own consultancy, company called Notka. So welcome to the podcast, Phil, and uh, I'm excited to explore um, the world of broadcast and everything you've done in your career here. Uh, I think it's going to be exciting uh, to to debate all this. Uh, And as we always do here, we kind of start off a bit of of warm-up, a bit of storytelling uh, and I'd love to hear a little more from you about when you set up the the sports news television agency. Um, how did that start, and how did that sort of you know shape your career?
1: Thanks, Marcus. It's a, it's a pleasure to be talking to you, as always. Um, yeah, it's it, it's funny, really. Uh, I am the po- poacher termed gamekeeper when it comes to sports rights, because right. the reason that I got into Sports rights and uh, and learn so much about them came from uh, when I set up a sports television. I think I can actually claim that it was the the world's first television sports news agency. Right. And and the way it came about was that I was working for uh, a television news agency called Viz News, um, which was uh, basically sending out. And in, in those days, it was actually tapes shipped on planes rather than satellite feeds. Yep. But they were sending out a certain number of uh, news stories every day to uh, broadcasters around the world to use in their news bulletins. Hmm. Um, I looked at this and said, well, you know, why, why don't you do a separate sports news service? And they, uh, they said, well, how do we know it would work? And I said, well, if you give me a month and a budget to do some traveling, I'll go out and try and sign you some contracts, um, which they surprisingly agreed to. Um, I went to uh, South America for two reasons. Number one, I was a young man and I wanted to see South America. Yeah. Number two, I knew they were crazy about sport down in South America. So uh, I did that. I toured uh, I toured South America for a month. Um, the only country I didn't get into was Argentina because a uh, little thing called the Falklands War uh, cropped up in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came back with a bunch of contracts and... Uh, uh, you know, I realized that this was a goer. And through that, I learned about something called news access, which basically gave the broadcasters the permission, the ability to show short extracts of sports events in their news bulletins. But it was through learning about news access that I started to think much more about sports rights. Right. Who was buying them? Who was selling them? How that all worked.
0: Which so, year was this? The one, what we're talking about right now. This, no? was in,
1: this was in the early 80s. This was wow. like 82, something like that. And uh, actually, the sports news service went on to be a big success. Um, of course, what I learned many years later was that I should have done that as me. I should have set it up myself. Then I would have made a lot of money. But <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't the budding young entrepreneur uh, at that time. But it was a success. And um, actually, it was from doing that that I then went full fully into sports rights uh, with. Uh, ISL, if you remember ISL.
0: Of course, yes. I
1: uh, I set up the ISL uh, television operation oh, for really? them, um, and uh, so that then I was in sports rights proper. Uh, and uh, the next thing I did was not for an agency. Next thing I did was to work for Bernie Eccleston for a short time, selling Formula One rights. So then I was kind of up and running as a uh, as a sports rights salesman. And really? I, it's funny because. If you'd said to me, um, "What did I want to be when I was young?" I always said I wanted to be a journalist. Somehow that got kind of twisted into from from the print media into television, and then suddenly ended up finding that I really enjoyed um, trading sports rights.
0: Awesome, awesome! When you were with the ISL, what what were the rights you were dealing with? Was it football World Cup or the Olympics, or which were the rights you were working? Both with? of those. Yeah. Both of those. Uh,
1: basically the. Um, uh, the late uh, Horst Dazzler of Adidas had uh, set up ISL, and uh, he had got the commercial rights to both the Olympics and the Football World Cup. That's right, pretty sure. amazing. And um, there were some there were some chunky deals in place uh, for television rights for both of those. So, for example, with the European Broadcasting Union, um, which covered yeah, the whole of Europe, but there were there were a bunch of territories which weren't covered. And th- those are the ones we um, we went out and uh, and sold those rights to. So yeah, yeah, I started off with some pretty good rights.
0: Yeah, no, I, I know the ISL story quite well. I Actually, my, my career literally started with ISL as well, in a much smaller way. I was uh, working with them in 1994 at the Football World Cup, um, which was still when ISL was still around. Obviously, a few years later, they sort of imploded. Uh, but yeah, ISL is an incredible company and obviously has some, has some illustrious alumni around the world. Uh, like oh, ISL. absolutely,
1: yeah. I, um, I, I left, uh, thankfully, long before it, it all turned a bit sour. Uh, I do remember, funnily enough, I remember uh, the first uh, World Cup I went to, which was in Mexico. And uh, I remember that uh, uh, at that stage, uh, ISL wasn't very happy with the coverage from uh, the Mexican host broadcaster. And um, I had to go around and uh, try and sweeten all the cameramen. (laughs)
0: yeah that I can imagine i mean like i said ninety four was already compared to what we talking about now is is you know like the wild west but uh, the days you were in there, I can only imagine um how that feat was coming out of that uh, building or out of the venue
1: <laughs> it's interesting I'm told that i mean you know like the nineteen sixty six world Cup the one here in in the u k there wasn't there was, was not there was actually no advertising boards around the pitch yeah. believe it or not, I think the first one that uh, was commercialized at all was uh, was 1970 and I'm, I'm right. told that if you if you look at old film I think it was film of 1970 that just as the first whistle is about to uh, to blow for the first match of the 1970 World Cup you'll see Pelly on the center circle uh, bend down and retie his boot lace and yeah. you'll see the cameraman going close on the boot I think that is probably where it all began
0: that's right yep I've, I've heard about that story too and and i actually recently read somewhere he was paid something like i can't remember a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars to do it so this wasn't by accident he did it on purpose
1: no, uh, absolutely.
0: and he was obviously paid a good good amount of money for it yeah so that's those are great great stories there that's for sure um now i'm sure we could be talking uh, you know we maybe come back to a bit later but i i'd love to also instill in all those sort of warm-up session here Jump into the Premier League because it's clearly mm-hmm. that's such a big, uh, big, big league. As well as what you did is so tr- dramatic and, and tremendous. So I'd love you to share with us a little bit of a, of course, you know how you got in it, maybe, and then some of these numbers which are staggering of how this league grew um, during your time and and beyond. Well,
1: there's a lot of people, Marcus, who um, have congratulated me about my stroke of marketing genius to uh, introduce the uh, midday. Premier League match here mm. in the UK, uh, saying, "Wow, wasn't that a clever thing to do? Because it's prime time in Asia, and that yeah, really helped you, you. All right?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and actually, as much as I'd love to claim it as marketing genius, it, it really wasn't. It was it was down to a police de- decision in the UK. Really? At That time they were they were a little concerned that um, that people were going to be going to big matches. Uh, a little bit worse for wear with alcohol. And so they wanted to introduce an early kickoff. And any matches where they were worried about this, they could put into this early kickoff slot. Wow. Now, the great thing for me was that the, all the matches they were worried about were, you know, the, the big, big local matches. derbies. Of course. Yeah, like Manchester United, Liverpool, Spurs, Arsenal, et cetera. Yep. So those those were the kind of matches that were being shifted to the early kickoff on Saturday, which, of course, yeah, was going out of prime time in Asia. So, yeah, you know, that really did help. But, um as much as I'd love to claim that as genius, it, it
0: wasn't anything a like at all. Interesting. Yeah, I've never read that. I have to admit, but uh, that's great. That's a great story. I uh, think there's a
1: whole bunch of different reasons. People are always asking me, you know, what's the reason for the success of Premier League internationally, and and I say, hey, you know, it, it's not one thing. Uh, I mean, setting up Premier League TV uh, with IMG to make sure that all of the output was. Uh, consistently good and you know properly badged that I think that was important we, ha- we we did a lot of good stuff with the broadcasters we set up a workshop so they could come to London and uh, the producers would come to London every year and we'd talk about what we liked what they liked what we didn't like um, we you know we even had their we we even had them the the producers mobile numbers so we could Text them if there was any kind of delay due to bad weather or something with a kickoff. It, 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 we provided a really good service, I will say that, and I think that that was paid, that paid off yeah. for us.
0: I, I think the I, other the thing. Number, which, the numbers are there, right? I mean, you said something like sixty million to almost five hundred million was the increase, which is yeah. staggering. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Maybe talk a bit about that. It was that. a
1: huge, huge increase. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. When I first went there, they they. Uh, they had just completed a, a deal overseas, um, and I'd basically said to Richard, "You know, we've got to stop selling matches to agencies. We've got to start selling directly to broadcasters." Right. I'm not saying we, an agency, if an agency wants to come in and pay more than we're being offered by a broadcaster, sure, let them take the risk. Yep. But primarily, there's no reason to let anyone else take uh, a percentage out of the chain. And there were some big numbers, big percentages. Being taken out of the chain, believe me. Um, You know, agents were getting the rights from the Premier League and doubling them. And.
0: Yep. You know, yeah, you,
1: yeah. you, you, you well,
0: don't yeah. want that. Yep. No, there is always that. You know, that's what agencies do. That's for sure. That's
1: what they do and good luck to them if they can do it. But you know, I'm on the, I was on the other side then and basically said, no, we, we need to stop this and we need to establish a direct relationship with the broadcasters. I remember going down to uh, Johannesburg, seeing the, uh, the guys down there at, uh, uh, at super channel in South Africa. And, uh, bearing in mind this is like 2002 and uh, the Premier League had started in 92 so they, they'd had the rights from the start they'd never met anyone from the Premier League I was oh. the first person they met mm. so that, no one had ever uh, there, was, there wasn't a TV guy at the Premier League no one had gone out and spoken and met with all these broadcasters and got to know them and what they needed and what worked for them so we did that and, and I think that has a big effect then of course uh, you get kind of a a virtuous circle in that the more money's coming in, uh, the, as you well know, Marcus, the money goes straight through to the clubs who uh, spend Spended all the money all on the players. players. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I, I I used to joke at one point that uh, that uh, the Bentley, you know, the car manufacturer, should give me a contract. And someone said, "Why?" I said, "Well, because." I bring in all this money for the Premier League, Premier League give it to the clubs, clubs give it to the players and the players buy baby Bentleys. And we yeah. might as well cut out all the middlemen, you know, I could so give the money straight to them. Could
0: have been but, business
1: uh, there. but what the clubs did spend money on, which really helped me, was players from other countries. Yeah. So it was a kind of win-win. Um, I was getting more money, giving the money to the clubs. The clubs were spending it on more players, making the product more attractive to a point where I used to say we, we, we essentially had a world league that happened to be played in Britain. Which Correct. was which
0: was very nice, very Correct. good. Right. And that's a great point, and we've seen it all the time. Where if you have local stars who then are transported to another part of the world, um, the, the the rights fees and 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 the the attention from the local market then just explodes. And and clearly that's exactly what you've guys done with that new money coming in, bringing in the Ronaldos of the world um, into the league. Uh, yeah, I, easy to see how that all spiraled into the right direction there.
1: Yeah, I don't think there are many people who uh, work as salesmen that see so much of the revenue they bring in go into the product. Yeah. I and mean, that's really what it's down to. You yeah, know, you can you can talk about agents, player agents taking money out, but but so much of the money was spent by was was spent by the clubs. They weren't keeping in those days the clubs were, were not making any money themselves. They were just spending it all on players. But yeah. you can say In in retrospect, and I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think this is something that you can credit them for thinking at the time, but they built this huge global property. I don't think they think they were doing it. They were just doing it because they wanted the best players to win matches. Absolutely. But they did. You know, they spent a lot of the money. Businesses. I think if you speak speak to any kind of business guru now, they'll say, "Well, all your early revenue needs to be ploughed back into the product and build the product." Yep. That's, what they, did, that's what they
0: did Yeah, correct, yeah. correct. Well, that, yeah, that's probably wasn't the plan. Now, I'd love to touch on one other thing here. Um, and I remember, um, when you were with a leak, um, you guys ran some very, very sophisticated tender processes. Um, where mm. you know, tenders not just obviously for the local market, but you know globally, uh, were run. With a host of you know different nuances on the territories and how you could package you know bid for different packages, which you know as I said, I think you guys again mm. set a very very high standard, and I think a lot of the rest of the world tried to follow. And and I do remember as well that I'm not sure you told me the story or someone else that there was some even some game theory involved where you look through this. Okay, if this person would bid this, and then the next one, what happens then? Can you talk a bit about that? I'd be I think fascinating to hear. Sure.
1: Well, that that really um, that really came out of what was going on in in England in the UK, because um, by that stage the Premier League had become a hot property and British television, um, the, you know, the broad the satellite pay TV broadcasters really could not do without it, and therefore um, the the government the regulators started to get a little bit involved and. Essentially, the Premier League had to make sure that its sales process moved from being a negotiated deal through to a, uh, a squeaky clean um, regulated official sales process yep. which included um sealed bids auctions etc cetera, etc cetera. and so we what we did was we, we essentially took that because actually what we realized was that although we've been forced to do this in the uk that if you were clever with it if you as you said if you built packages so that um the broadcast you put all the advantage with you, the broadcasters were were kind of bidding blind and <laughs> uh, and and they basically we feasted on their paranoia. that's what we did yep. you know they they, they they every time they oh, might have oh. thought this is the right number, they thought, yeah, but what happens if someone else bids more? we don't want to lose that package and um and yeah it it paid off handsomely, and we we took that system into all of our international uh, rights sales as well. And um, uh, I, I do think that also contributed to um, a, a massive increase in revenue as well.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and you know, we've obviously had some exchanges uh, during that period of time, and and it, the numbers were incredible. And and you, you're right, you know, there was a fear of missing out. FOMO was created, uh, and and that's and you know, obviously, obviously having multiple parties always interested in it. That's the whole trick. And and you guys did an amazing job doing that
1: you can't do it without competition i mean the, the, the you know the bottom line is you've got to have competition in markets for your rights otherwise forget about it you're not going to get increases yeah. but if you have got a competitive market and really if you've got more than two you know if you get through upwards from 3 then you can play some very interesting games and um, totally agree. i mean i remember we had uh, we had situations where broadcasters could bid for regions or they could bid for individual territories and you know they would put in bids for both end up bidding against themselves and making the price go up it was it, you know it was for a salesperson it was a joy at that time i have to say
0: yeah yep i do remember some of those conversations we had and and it's a great segue into into the this, the the next part really of our conversation that is the world now has obviously dramatically changed um i would argue the the glory days of what we're just we're talking about and how these fees just continually grow and you literally could see every year um, there was a nice additional increase um, or you know a year, year on your packages depends on how it was sold uh, I think that world has has gone um, I believe it's the opposite is happening uh, is that rights fees are either stagnant and, and in some cases we've obviously know already they're going backwards um, although in some sense, you would think that shouldn't be the case because new technology has come in with OTT and new players have come in. Um, but I think in some degree, these new players have really destructed you know, or, or, or created a destruction in the rights fees because it takes so much Revenue away from the existing parties who have been feeding this, right? The pay TV operators, and maybe some markets still there was always free to air. There was some good money there as well. But really, pay TV who drove a lot of this uh, these mar- massive rise fees which we've just been talking about. But now you got a whole different, you know, world out there. You know, and I know you're obviously still involved in this very much uh, with your agency now. So let's talk a bit about that. What, what's your view in the, you know what's happening there right now?
1: Yeah, I think the world has uh, has changed, or is changing, and has changed pretty much out of all recognition. I think, uh, you know, when I when I first uh, went to the Premier League, uh, one of the big changes I noticed in the first five years was I started to talk to a lawyer every day. That that had, I'd never done that before. Then after that, uh, uh, as the, the 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 numbers, the money increased, uh, I started to talk to a regulator every week. You know, so governments got involved and. Right. Uh, but the industry itself was still a bit like the wild west. You know, there was a. I needn't tell you, Marcus. There was there was tons of stuff going on that, uh, and everybody was looking to make a buck. Um, and w- these days, I think um, there's a, it's even reached the stage where uh, uh, it's governments have got involved. You know, it's it's become a nation-state political tool. As you know, football yeah. is such a major, major flag waving property. Um, But you're right. Um, What has happened um, is that the Wild West, the industry, which was very young, has grown up. Um, You know, when I was selling to pay TV broadcasters, and you're right, it was largely pay TV broadcasters. The guys who were making the decisions were doing it on gut instinct. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I think, for example, Sky's Sky's big business strategy was to buy all the rights. (laughs) That's it. Not let anyone else get any. Yep. Um, now, uh, if you talk to 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 those same pay TV broadcasters, they have a room of uh, 25-year-old kids in suits doing analysis on data, and they can tell you pretty much what everything is worth. Yep. So if you go to them with some sports rights, they will say, okay, if we buy these rights, we'll add this number of subscribers. If we lose these rights, we'll lose this number of subscribers. And, and they start to talk about things like, the football subscriber. So, for example, Sky now has uh, uh, Premier League rights. They don't have Champions League rights. If they uh, if they were able to buy the Champions League rights, they might do it, but there's a very good chance that they'd look at it and say, actually, how many new subscribers do we get with the Champions Correct. League? We've already got all these guys. It's the same guy. Correct. So that kind of analysis, which wasn't around, thankfully, <laughs> when I was selling my rights, um, is now – a major, major part of, of uh, the fact that they're rationalizing how much they spend on on their rights. I think the other thing you mentioned there, you mentioned OTT. I mean, for as long as I've been doing this, people have been talking new technology because new technology is sexy and and there's a lot that I love about it. Yeah. But actually what I always say to people is um, with a new business model, you know, it's 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 great having new, ever more sophisticated delivery mechanisms. You can do this and you can do that, but actually the business model doesn't change. You're either going to get someone to pay you for for watching, or you're going to get uh, people, commercial companies, right. to pay you for eyeballs. It's either going to be advertiser funded or subscription. Right. And no one has yet come up with something which which changes that. So, you know, it used to be when the, when Everything was about portals and the internet. Now it's about OTT. But actually, it's the same – pretty much the same revenue pool yep. you're dipping into. So suddenly, if you get a – it does make me laugh when I see pr- reports about how the sports rights in, um, is going kind of grow and grow and grow massively. And you're thinking, well and – the, and they're saying it's because of OTT. i I go, yeah, well, it, but it's Peter robbing Paul. You know, if, <laughs> yeah, if someone, if someone launches an OTT channel – with, uh, with a great sports property on it, that's fantastic. And and whoever gets those rights, and if they get their numbers right, and the balance of what they pay for the rights and their number of subscribers, they'll make a lot of money. But that money is coming from the subscribers who will not now be spending it with a paid TV company. So, I agree. yeah, I, I, I don't see how there's a massive increase in the revenue pool. If anything, I think that's probably shrinking because because we live in a time where younger people particularly um, only want to pay for what they want to watch. They don't want to pay monthly subscriptions, annual subscriptions, and uh, they don't care about the rest of the stuff that's on the channel. They just want to pay for what they want to watch. Yeah. The, the trick of the pay TV broadcasters or the OTT guys is is to is to give them what they want so that they're paying just what they want to watch uh, and then they're going to find out that they're actually paying more. That would be, that's, that's yeah, it, what, you know. It
0: is. It's much more fragmented for sure. I think it's it's the unbundling is what I always call it world really where uh, it is no longer about buying this big paid TV um, box and put it in your house and you have 200 channels where, you know, you watch five of them only anyway. Uh, it is really about, you know, those three or four or five channels I want and sports hopefully is always a big part of that. Um, people are still willing to pay for it. We, I think that you know, there's plenty of research out there where that sh- where that's proven.
1: The question yeah. Of I think is people ha- will pay for it, Correct. but be, you, you know, Marcus, how much and how often and on what basis and whether we're talking micropayments, which I think is quite interesting, yep. um, and, and, and you know what will happen? Someone will aggregate. I mean, I, I've talked uh, – as you know, what I do now through my agency, I, I still work with governing bodies. I still try and do for them help them in the way I help the Premier League. Um, it's a much more difficult market now. But when I talk to them, often they talk about launching their own OTT channel. I say, well, you know, if the rights revenue goes down from the broadcasters, we'll launch our own T- OTT channel. Yeah. And I, I think they, they haven't taken on board really the um, what you got to be able to do to do that, the marketing, the distribution, the revenue collection, etc. So I think what will happen is – i think, i think it'll happen i think as you know some sports get to a point where they're not getting money from pay tv they'll launch their own ott channel but there's going to be someone who comes along and aggregates that Someone's yeah. going to come along and say to them, hey, you know, why do you want to mess with all of that stuff? I can do all that for you, and you can just slot your content in here. You want, you want to have a, uh, a channel for your sport? Here it is. It's on my platform. I'm doing all the, all the marketing for this platform. I'm doing all the revenue collection, production, technical. Right. You just got to – so it, it'll come round to that again, and yeah. I don't think that's going to change
0: And I I agree, and and we're literally having exactly the same conversations here in Asia um, with leagues who are now saying, you know, broadcasters are not lining up anymore and, you know, Asian leagues are always having a tougher time than, let's say, the Premier League had in the past anyway. Uh, and therefore, we have to go on our own. We have to create a direct-to-consumer business. Um, and you know, there are obviously companies who build OTT platforms now. You got plenty of them around the world. Um, we're just yep. going to hire one, and, and we're going to do it. Um, and as you rightly said, that's as a concept makes sense. Um, there is a lot of logic to it. Uh, the execution, as usual, is a lot harder to do, and this is sort of some of the work we're doing right now as well. Uh, but it's fun, and uh, but I do believe, and, and I think you you sort of almost said that in the same way, uh, it will. Take a few years, you know, it will shake itself out again, and there will be a new model, and there will be new revenue. Will it be really tremendously larger than it is right now, um, or does it have to go through a slump before it can turn again? Uh, no one, I think, has the answer. I don't. I've never heard anyone have a really good answer to it yet.
1: No, I, I think uh, what I what I tell my clients is, it looks more like a correction than a blip. Yep. It doesn't look like it's going to just bounce back quickly. It looks like there's gonna be a transformation time. I think you were right earlier when you said the new guys in town are disruptors. Uh, they, they, you know, For a long time, people were saying, hey, it'll be all right because um, if the pay TV guys don't stay on their toes and pay top dollar, you know, the big Americans, uh, Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft or Apple, they're all gonna come in and they're gonna pay loads of money instead. Well, actually they haven't, they've, they've been very clever They've basically they're letting the market uh, fall. Um, I you know I think they're all going to do their own thing in different ways, and they're certainly not all the same. But um, I think it's it's going to take time, as you say. And the other thing that makes me laugh a lot in the meantime <laughs> is still the number of governing bodies. Who basically say, "Hey, O T T, we better launch an O T T channel." In the same way as they used to say, "We better you know, launch an internet uh, website," and they basically say, "We'll put our live sport on there." And I say, "Well, you can do that, but don't expect the people who are paying you big rights fees or happen, any totally. rights fees now to carry on paying you because what you've got is one thing: you've got your you've got your rights." And uh, if a lot of people want to watch your sport live, then you're very lucky. But you can't sell it more than once. Correct. You know, it's it's live. (laughs) That's it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, so, and, and, and we know that the, the pay world only works in a certain exclusive window, right? I mean, it doesn't work if yes. you are free out there on whatever platform, whether it's your own or YouTube or God knows where you're streaming, and still hoping to God that the guy who just bought your rights can make money with it if you just, you know, blasting it around the world is insane.
1: Yeah, I I, I talked to a very large um, American. Let's say a new media company who who are going to buy some uh, Premier League rights in Asia that didn't in the end. So you All probably right. know who I'm talking about. Yes. But their plan was they were going to um, they were going to sub-license some live rights to pay TV broadcasts. And I said, well, good luck with that. Yep. Why would they want to take a sub-license from you guys?
0: <laughs> exactly. yeah exactly i mean there is, you know sometimes you, it's amazing how. but you know but it's uh it, and this is where I think to to wrap up this part of the of our little conversation here is uh the world is has changed and and uh and i think the as much as we all to some degree thought ott was would be adding to it um so you kind of keep the base and you keep just growing from there uh the opposite i think is a bit true right it is we're definitely seeing a dip there um and it will be interesting to see how it comes swings out uh, you know in in the next few years I guess we'll be there and watching it for sure and be part of it in some fashion I'm sure um, yeah let's that's right. uh, I want to do a little bit um, you know always one part of the conversation with uh, someone like yourself is learnings right um, you've had an illustrious career in many many organizations and now of course running your own business uh, what are the sort of you know learnings you've had, you would uh, you would share with someone here, um, both on the positive side, and then later we talk about some of maybe the failures of you know where you feel uh, things didn't go so well. So, but let's start always with a good positive note here. What some of the things you would share uh, from your career?
1: Well, it's interesting. I I, I started off foremost. First and foremost, I was a football fan and uh, uh, I started writing about football and I've watched football all my life. I still go uh, for pleasure as well for business to football matches mm-hmm. and um, and and I, I found that there's pretty much a metaphor for everything that uh, you need to do and think about in life in football. So, you know, teamwork, uh, that if you're putting a team together, you need a balance of different types of people, um, you need to believe in yourself, believe in what you're doing. That uh, having one one skill set is not enough. You've got to continue to develop yourself, and that uh, timing timing is everything. That uh, you can that being ahead of the game is as is as pointless as being behind the game. Yeah. So all of those things I kind of got from football. Although probably the one the one uh, metaphor, if it's not a metaphor, but just. Uh, Smart thing that I heard said was, I think it was Gary Player who said the famous thing about, um, you know, the harder I practice, the luckier I get. So, you do, it is in the end, a lot of it is about putting in the the hard yards, putting in the work, the effort, rolling up your sleeves, and believing in what you're doing. Um, It's interesting because for the past, uh, I don't know, couple of decades, I've been giving a, a couple of speeches a year to. Um, university students who um, are thinking about going into the sports industry, oh, right. which was a kind of industry that didn't really even exist when I was. This is in the UK. Or
0: which university? This are? is in the
1: UK. Yeah. Right, okay, yeah. great. And uh, I always start off by saying to them, "Well, how many of you want to work in the sports industry because you like playing sport?" You know, some hands go up, and I go, "Well, you shouldn't go into the sports industry because <laughs> when everybody else is playing sport, you're going to be working." Right. So, don't go into it for that reason. And then the next thing you got to think about is, uh, am I going into this because I love a particular sport? Well, if you if you love football, then you know that's great. Go into into the football industry, but be aware of two things. Number one, if you're successful, yep, you can make a lot of money. But you're going to be up against an awful lot of other people. There's a lot of money in football, but there's a lot of competition for those people trying to to work in it. On the other hand, if if your passion is, for example, weightlifting, that's great because you're not going to find too much competition to get into weightlifting. But hey, there's not a lot of money in weightlifting either. So you've got to be prepared to do something for the love of what you do rather than financial reward. So I think there's a lot of things that people don't see on the outside until you get into it. And I certainly didn't start off with any kind of career plan. As you know, I started off writing about uh, yeah. doing match reports on West Ham and the Sheffield clubs. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, 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 I didn't see any of this coming, to be honest with you, Marcus. And it, it just grew bit by bit. Yeah. So I think uh, you, you, you just have to, and I, and I know it was the same for you. You know, you you, you do one thing and it leads to another, Absolutely. and you get some, you get some that work and some that don't. I've been very lucky. That's that's the thing you need more than else, more than anything else, you need luck. Yeah. I was very lucky uh, that uh, Richard Scudamore decided that I could do something for the Premier League, um, and I did it. Um, I think uh, you've got to have faith in your ability to transform things, to change things. Most of the time, I have succeeded in that. Um, but as you mentioned, yeah, you know, there've been some That's some there where I haven't board, been
0: able right? to do it. Yeah, so, so yeah. talk a bit about what, where do you what do you see in in your career, whether you know uh, with some of the agencies or the roles mm-hmm. you had, uh, maybe where it didn't work so well.
1: Well, with uh, I, I left the um, I left the Premier League to join CAA, you know, huge American mm-hmm. agency, and um, they had some very uh, ambitious plans to dominate the world, to uh, rival uh, IMG. Um, But uh, essentially it didn't work out because when it came to it, the guys who wanted to do it were too used to the way that they worked in America. I mean, that's one big lesson for all of us that, that America is very different. Its sports model is very different. Its broadcasting model is different. You know, there's a lot of stuff that comes over from America, but when Americans try to do things outside America, they're usually a little bit surprised at how big the world is and how different it is to America. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, they get they get nervous and they get cold feet. Um, I think that's a little bit of what happened with CAA. But I would have to say that, um, you know, during my time at CAA, uh, they um, they sold a third of the company for multi multi million dollars. Um, uh, to an equity company. Right. So I, you know, part of me thinks okay. It didn't really work out. We set up the London office and we were going to conquer the world and that didn't work out. But on the other hand, they sold a third of the company for a very large sum of money. So maybe it did work uh, out.
0: So yeah, <laughs> maybe know. there was a different plan there. That's true. And and I do remember those times. Uh, we were actually doing some stuff together. I think we were working on some uh, in a particular football project in, in India, which I'm sure you recall.
1: Mm-hmm, uh, but you
0: also had some uh, – you had obviously some – big uh, partners with you in NCA when you guys set up. I mean, you were really a heavyweight team there, um, and on the back of it, I think yeah. the expectations were then equally high, right? Uh,
1: I think that's right, and, uh, and I think we could have done some huge things, but in the end, I think that they weren't uh, the people who um, were running CEA were in a different business. You know, they have been used to not taking huge gambles. They'd been used to representing Hollywood stars and taking 10% of their earnings. Um, so th- th- theirs was a kind of you know, can I negotiate a good role for Lenny DiCaprio uh, and make some money on it? That's a very different world to to the kind of ballsy world that we work in, Marcus, where you have to put down a big number and take the risk and hope you can make a small percentage. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think they got cold feet. Um but like I say, I think you can. One of the lessons I've learned in this, in my time in this industry, is not everything is always as it seems, and and some things, is, you know, where you, you don't think feel have been a success. Well, actually, they might have been a success for someone else because I think CEA did very well out of that time of saying what it was going to do.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. when I went to Lagard, go ahead. Lager- I went from there to Lagardea. Uh, unfortunately, that was just, I mentioned earlier, you know, bad timing. Uh, by the time I arrived at Lagadere, I think, uh, I think Arno had decided that, that, you know, he didn't want to do that anymore. And um, so essentially, uh, it, it wasn't much fun for me because um, there were a number of, number of uh, agencies within Lagadere that I was responsible for. And um they they were never going to grow anymore you know the 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 blood supply was being cut off to them so it wasn't much of a fun time for me that and and that certainly had some influence on me deciding okay i i need to do my own thing now and um the funny thing about that has been that uh as you know Marcus i've spent nearly all my career working internationally yeah. Um, it's been a fantastic privilege for me to have spent so much time traveling and seeing the world. And actually when I set up my own business, suddenly everybody wanted to hire me to do things in the UK. So since then I've been, That's you know, nice too, for, I guess, yeah. it's, it's, it's a big change, you know, so, uh, I've been working for the FA and the football league and help them with their deals. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now I'm, 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 which is part international of course is I'm working in, in rugby, which has been fascinating. Different shape ball, different game. That's for sure. But, uh, I, some I of the
0: same issues. Yeah, I want to come back for a minute to to CAA and and Lagadere um, huh. yeah. of course, we all know. Um, not besides the times when you were there, um, they've fallen even on harder times to some degree, especially here in Asia. Obviously, losing the the uh, the football league as uh, the football rights to the AFC, um, and at least mm-hmm. from what I hear on the back of it, of course, uh, there's major changes going on in that. Um, so they, you know, they for sure is a, is a, is an interesting example of how. Someone had a vision there when 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 Lagarde started, um, but it hasn't quite worked out. Now there's the other example of, of friends from CAA, which and they're, they're sort of it's called it offspring CAA 11 where you know, mm. they gone in there and bought, obviously, major rights in, of European football, you know, the uh, UEFA side of it. And uh, on the back of it, you know, again, how well they're doing, I don't know. Actually, I don't know really the numbers, but uh, at least on paper, it looks like, uh, you know, it's all heading sort of in the right direction. What, what's your thought on, on all those things happening?
1: I think that the day of the big agency is probably over. I think, um, let's put it this way. I wouldn't launch or try to be involved in a big agency now there's been times over the last five years where people have come up to me and said, hey why don't we uh, why don't we start a big agency you know I can get the backing for it uh, I don't think that's the way to go now. I, I think that um, uh, the, the, the major the major properties are very good at selling themselves I mean the trend that I started when I went to the Premier League, of doing deals directly with broadcasters. Well, Premier League has done that ever since. Yeah. A lot of the other governing bodies have done that. They've cut out the middleman. They've cut out the agency. So it's a very limited world that they're operating in. And and the crown jewels don't need them. Uh, if yep. you if you add to that uh, a falling rights market, then it's it's a pretty tough time to be a major agency. I think you need to. I think what will will come out of it. Uh, and we've seen, you know, um, in front uh, recently had a very disappointing IPO uh, mm-hmm. on the New York exchange. IMG pulled its flotation on the eve of its uh, going to market because they were worried about what, they, what was going to happen. Uh, uh, we've seen MP and silver. You know, it's yep. gone. Absolutely. Um, I, 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 don't think that those we're going to see big comebacks or new agencies emerging. I think what will happen is you will see more what you might call boutique operations, maybe bigger than my mine. I mean, I'm, I, I like to work as a one-man band. I sometimes join up with other people who um, provide things that I don't do, like market research. But I like to work uh, uh, to, to work as a one-man band. But what I do say is that anyone who's operating a small boat, boutique operation, they might be that they specialize on certain types of sport, but they've all got to offer what I call 360 these days. They've got to be able to be more than just saying, I'll give you a minimum guarantee for your property and I'll go and sell it. Absolutely. They've got to be actually able to advise you on digital transformation. They, they've got to be able to uh, be a complete 360 consultancy, which is you know, what I try and, try and set out to be. Uh, so it's not just a case of getting your rights and selling them. You've got to help them with the strategy, long-term, medium-term. You've got to think what's coming next um, and how they're set up for it. It's, it's, a, much, it's a much more uh, complex Matrix than it was when I first went into the industry.
0: Yeah, I would, and I totally agree. And, and, and when, when you're talking, I this is pretty much exactly what we're doing now as well we're, we're becoming much more I would say consulting driven um, so we still then deliver and, and help them find the revenue streams and generate that but it's not about putting this big MGs on the table anymore um, A you know there's very few who can literally afford it but also even if you do it you know we've seen it with, with some of our competitors who, when they were bidding against us and they put these huge numbers on it we know then afterwards so they were all losing money on it right and so it's, it's you mm-hmm. know just because you have an executive in in, in some part of the world, who feels he ha- he knows the number and he can make it back for you, um, the guy who sits in headquarters, and if he signs off on it, believing that is he, the, the 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 guy who runs his office in in Asia or wherever in the world uh, knows it, you know what he's going to do, you know he's going he's going to burn a ton a hole in the pocket. He might fire the guy, but this is you know he's never going to get his money back. So I, I think exactly the you know there is the, the approach has to change and it is changing dramatically. We have some consulting roles here. Now, exactly like what you're just talking about, and, and similar to what you do in Europe, um, where the role is just very different. Where you're not, you know, you are sitting truly on the same table with the stakeholder, rather than you, in a sense, buying it, and you, you just, you're almost on the other, on the other side, right? Um, yeah, you know, I and, think and, that's and right. You, or you get stuck in the middle, then all of a sudden, right? And we've seen that with with agencies where which they buy out rights and they get in the middle of broadcasters than everyone else, and then they get squeezed out, you know, because everyone knows they have, you know, they have the risk now on them. So. Definitely uh, an interesting time for agencies, I think, anywhere in the world, and uh, and we will all keep seeing and looking and talking about, I'm sure, when we all meet at Sportel again in uh, in a few weeks. So uh, that's I'm sure going to be one of the topics there. But before we head there, let's uh, we're getting close to our sort of cool down phase here. And part of it, you know, a little bit about maybe share with you know what you're doing at the moment. uh, What's your own plans? You know, a little or a message you have for for the inspiring sports executives out here.
1: Mm. Okay. Well, I think um, uh, it's an extremely different world that people would be getting into than the one I got into. Like I say, it was it was more like the Wild West. It's now becoming much more regulated for better and for worse. Um, one thing we didn't mention actually was piracy. I think that's becoming uh, yeah. a much more sophisticated – problem. It's a huge topic. And, uh, you know, that's something that's going to be spoken a lot about at Sportel. Um, I, I, I do think that's another reason that you have to be a little bit careful about um, putting big numbers down for rights because, uh you know, other people are taking them and and using them for free, and as as you know, Marcus, that's that's reached some pretty high levels uh, in every sense these days in terms of who's pirating them, and the scale of it. So uh, that yep. that's one thing I think people would have to take into consideration.
0: Uh. I do remember you were doing some work for the AFC, uh, which has obviously gone out there and and created this huge huge new deal uh, with the group out of China for reportedly somewhere around 3.5 or 4 billion dollars. Um, you know, share a little bit of of your thoughts on it, uh, and I'll add mine to it later too.
1: Well. Uh... It was a fascinating project for me. I spent um, a couple of years uh, working for the AFC, spent a lot of time out in uh, Kuala Lumpur. Um, And at that time, um, they were coming into the sort of last cycle of uh, an eight-year rights deal. Um, And they wanted to uh, sell their rights in a different way. They wanted to take on board... um, Exactly what you were talking about earlier that I'd instilled with the Premier League. They wanted to have a a clean uh, sales process, regulated, uh, official, an auction. So um, I spent a lot of time with them working out how we could do it and the packaging and talking to potential bidders, working up the market, which you have to do. And uh, uh, as you know, Marcus, I, I didn't see it through. Uh, before the auction took place, um, there were a couple of things that made me pretty nervous about uh, what was happening, and uh, I didn't want to be associated with it, so I, uh, I walked away. Um, but uh, the auction went ahead, and they got a – as you say, a very big number um, yeah. for their rights, and, and uh, you know now they have to – that agency – and we haven't talked about them because it's almost like a, a specific agency for that one property. Um, yep. They have to go and try and get a, a, a return on their investment. I think it's given everything else we've said about the rights market, it's not going to be easy for them. Given what I earlier referred to in terms of piracy, as as you know, that will severely affect that part of the world. So I don't think it's going to be. Easy uh, for the AFC, but uh, um, they they did get a big number, so that's good for
0: them. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think I think from a rights holder, if they get the money, um, and assuming they will, uh, then fantastic for them. Clearly, the uh, the group who bought it uh, is going to face all the challenges we've been talked about the last hour uh, because yeah. of the changes. So it isn't the automatic. Uh, yeah, there will be a higher fee just because now I own it. Um, you have to, you know, uh, remember the the crazy days of Le, Le sports in China, which were yeah, throwing money sure. around like crazy. Well, they're not around anymore, right? And there, I don't see anyone there coming anywhere close uh, putting these sort of numbers no. in China in the, on the table. And so, uh, I think there is. Uh, it's an interesting time. I'm, of course, uh, when you hear. Uh, presentations from the group there, uh, you know, it's, it all sounds great, and I think they have great plans and they have a great team of people there. Uh, but I do wish them good luck and, and uh, be watching uh, what happens there. I sort of uh, you know, have I have my doubts um, that these numbers will all add up, but. Who knows? Um, you know, it's tough. I mean, you know, one thing I would say yeah. is that,
1: and I really, my appreciation of this grew during my time working with the AFC, is uh, is is just the size, just the scale of what you're trying to do. I mean, you know, one can have philosophical debates about what Asia is and uh, and what what is the commonality between the countries that make up Asia, yeah. but in football terms, when you think that. Uh, you know a the the football version of asia embraces australia korea uh, the middle east, middle east and yeah. and the central asian yeah, com- countries as well you know right. and everything in between you think well the 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 dichotomy is the, the 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 differences between those different territories in economic wealth, in football ability, in stadia size, in in broadcasting sophistication. I mean, there's some territories within there that don't even have any laws relating to intellectual property. Yep. So that makes it, you know, it, you, you can try and copy a European model, but actually, it's it's very different and it's very big, um, and that I think. You
0: know, it, that doubles the challenge, probably. I totally agree. Yeah. And I, now we could go on forever here uh, because there's <laughs> so many fun topics uh, we could pick on. Um, but I think we also need to be conscious of our time. So, uh, Phil, I'd love to thank you for this great chat. Um, it's always been a pleasure. Um, and I'm sure we'll see you soon again somewhere, whether Spotel or another part of the world. And uh, thank you very much.
1: Uh, it's been my pleasure, as always, to chat with you, Marcus, and, uh, and I hope that uh, I've been able to give anyone listening uh, a little bit of insight and uh, help. Thanks again.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Talk to you later. Speak soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye.
1: The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Luhr Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Luhr. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.